And once I'm in the moment, once I'm totally focused on image creation, things kind of disappear in the background. I'm totally in that moment. And I've actually read that this happens to race car drivers too. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today we are talking with Stephen Gunther, which means we are talking about mindfulness. We are talking about a Zen approach to photography, and we're talking about brilliance, not only brilliance in terms of composition and career, but brilliance in terms of use of color and framing and all of the elements that go into making compelling images. He's got a career that I am frankly jealous of. After an early start and an education in vis- visual psychology, we'll have to figure out what that is in a second, moved into a 20-year career in graphic design, and for the last decade or more, uh, has been documenting NGO humanitarian projects all around the world. Stephen, welcome. I'm looking forward to this. How, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I am looking forward to this as well. We spoke briefly the other day, and it just piqued my excitement about an opportunity (laughs) to talk. So I thank you for that. And thank you to everybody at Frames for making this happen. I greatly appreciate it. Well, I mean, Stephen, your your work is, I'm going to use a technical term here, it's magical. Uh, I, I look at your images, especially the Zen and the water images, and I really have a, a deep and, and, and profound emotional response to them. Something that I find really satisfying as audience, and I find myself envious of as photographer, trying to uh, achieve that same emotional response. But before we get into the, to the images itself, I do want to, you know, sort of do a history here. You say that, you know, your first camera was a Mickey Mouse camera, uh, and then, <laughs> yeah, and then, then you got your brother's 35 millimeter Pentax. But tell me when you were itty bitty, what about image making called to you? Well, you know, I started thinking about that prior to this podcast, and I seem to have always had a camera, and I was. I don't think as a, a child I requested a camera, but my father, though he was a physician, he had a post-World War II Leica and took it everywhere on vacation. And then after vacations, of course, we had the slideshows. Oh, yeah. And they must have left an impact. I mean, I have all of his images. He's deceased. But... That might have been, maybe it was son following dad, but I seem to have always, you know, the the Mickey Mouse camera, the Kodak Starbright, the Minolta sub-miniature, I was always taking photographs, but I never saw it as an occupation, I just saw it as something that was fun to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you just made me think of something. I wonder, for people that are relatively our age, those evenings, afternoons, nights, whatever, in the basement with the old carousel and, and the slides. Yeah. I, I mean, at one level, th- that was medieval torture, but at another level, it was fantastic. The whole mood of, of that, it was like going to a movie. Um, it, it was just really, really, I, I think, formative for a lot of us. Yeah, and, uh, and it, it, 
you know, as you said, the darkened room and the heat and the the sound of the projector. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a family gathering. Maybe let's just call it a visual fireplace where we all just sat there. Oh, and I like that. And I like that. Looked at these images that we were just experienced, and now we're seeing some of those images. And I've looked at some of my father's images, and I, you know, one out of a hundred is just a stunner. Back then, you had a, you know, take a light meter, set the aperture, set the speed. <laughs> it was a much slower process than anybody is used to today. And he, he did quite well. So, Oh, one out of 100 is not a bad hit rate even it's today. It's not. It's not. <laughs> so tell me about an undergraduate education in visual psychology. You know, I originally started, it sound, will sound odd, I started off to be a medical illustrator. So that involved art classes and pre-med. And uh, in the middle of that, the pre-med was not what I wanted to do. So I actually changed majors, jumped into psychology. And in the last few years, um, there was an emphasis on perceptual psychology, how perception works, both internally and what you perceive. And it was quite interesting. And I'm sure it had an influence, but at that point, it's still, I wasn't drawn to photography. I photographed, you know, race car races and those kind of things, but didn't really get the art form of it or the power of it. And I'm going to segue into a short story that I had a friend at that time who was an architectural student. And I had called him up and said, hey, you want to Joe, you want to get a beer? It's the last week of our undergraduate. And he's like, yeah, sure. Meet me at the darkroom. I'm like, oh, okay. So he told me where the darkroom was. I showed up. He came out. He said, I'm not done yet. We went in and he turned the light off. It was black and white darkroom. Red light came on. Um, He walked over to this machine, made this image appear in negative on a piece of paper, put the piece of paper in a developing fluid, I was hooked. It was literally <laughs> hooked. I did not sleep much that night. And I remember telling my parents that even though I was graduating next week, that I wanted to study photography. So it was it was literally that moment. It was like, what is that? It's magic. And that's kind of where it kicked in for me. It's interesting that that, that moment occurred in the processing and not the taking. It was. There was something magical. I'm pretty mechanical. I, I like sort of the clean arts, if you will, and photography's that. But to watch the lights go out, this whole process of producing a photograph. I mean, I'd seen black and white photographs. I'd seen color photographs, but I, I didn't know how they were made. So it, it was literally magic. I mean, to watch that image come up in the developing tray. So... Do, do you think that's lost these days? Jumping forward a little bit here, do you think all of us that are so invested in digital now that we've lost that sense of magic? I think what we've lost, I, I mean, I have a large format inkjet printer and it does a wonderful job, um, produces gorgeous prints, um, color prints, I think, better than analog C prints. What I think we miss in the darkroom is the solitude the fact that, that we went into this room, it was dark, it was quiet, we concentrated. And if you're fortunate enough to have a community dark room, there were always mentors or senior students 
who would share what they had learned as you were learning. And I think that's missing today. And, you know, I think in the photography process itself, it, it's pretty fast. So I think for younger photographers, they can get lost in that um, without, I mean, you know, when I took photographs, uh, it was expensive to buy a roll of film. If you went on a trip, you took 25 rolls of film. You judiciously used that film to last the <laughs> length of time that you were on the trip. Well, now if I go on a trip, in a week I'll shoot a couple thousand images, which I never would have done. And it makes the editing process a, a little more laborious, but it is what it is. So. You know, speed is, is both you know a virtue and a problem. Something as simple as dodging and burning, we now do just with a slider. We go back and forth. It, it's effortless. Um, so, I mean, th- that's a merit, but also, you know, learning the slowness of that back with the chemicals in the paper teaches you a, a different cadence, a different uh, approach. You, you then went off to the Center of Photographic Studies, uh, and you yeah. mentioned you mentioned mentoring a second ago with community darkrooms. You yeah. say in several places that when you were there, you, you had mentors, and your mentors had mentors. So tell me the story of of being in that school and tell me what you think mentoring is all about. Well, you know, at that time with an undergraduate degree in psychology, you really couldn't get into a graduate program. They weren't as anxious as they are now to get cross-disciplinary students. Like if you have a degree in history and you want to go to art school, graduate school, they're okay with that. Back then, you really needed the undergraduate art degree. So there had to be a bridge. And at that point, there were two primary independent, let's just you call them fine art schools. One was the Visual Studies Workshop run by Nathan Lerner in New York. And the other one, I lived in Cincinnati, it was 100 miles away in Louisville, called the Center for Photographic Studies run by C.J. Presma. And I went and visited the Louisville facility, and it, it really fit what I wanted to do. And I was extremely naive about photography, about the process, about where it was going to take me. But I also had my mentor, the gentleman who ran the school, C.J. Presma. He took all of his students under his wing, and I think in many ways he saw more potential in me than I did in myself. And that's a rare kind of teacher. And as I, we were talking earlier, the community aspect, there were maybe 20 students, different ages from 22 to 30-something, and there was a community darkroom. And as I said earlier, there was a lot of learning in that darkroom and sharing that um, good memories, you know, it's good times, so... You say in several places that your mentors were, you know, under the influence of minor white and this, this yes. whole approach to yeah. uh, photography. So you were learning not only technical stuff, you were learning an attitude. You were learning a, a style and, and an approach. Yep. The two gentlemen who ran the school, um, C.J. Presma and Alex Traub, had both studied with minor white. I think he had a postgraduate program at MIT I want to say it was a year. And Minor White, if you know his work and you know him, he was kind of a Zen master haiku poet, and he approached photography that way. 
So they brought that to their school, um, and that involved centering. It involved learning to see. It learned looking at lots of slideshows and learning how to distinguish what makes a photograph, what you see in the photograph. And it was all kind of new to me, which even made it even more interesting. And it it was also at a time where a lot of photographers, this was, you know, early 70s, and photography was not quite where it is today. So a lot of people came through the workshop. A lot of people, not just Minor White, but Jerry Yulesman, Ansel Adams, Campanegro. A lot of people came through. So we were exposed to people that, you know, also influenced us greatly. It was a, it was a very tight community at that time. You, you kind of knew who the people were and they knew what you were doing. Um, it was very nice, very lovely. But it, it strikes me that mindfulness and, and a Zen approach would be a little bit foreign to somebody who's 22, 23 years old, you know, just getting started. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean it, it, you said you photographed race cars. I mean, you know, that's what I would have been doing if I had a camera back then. You know, wh- what is it about the Zen approach spoke to you? I, I think sort of its newness. And I, I really hadn't taken any photography classes, so there was no other approach to me. And it was kind of like visiting a foreign land. You can either be intimidated by it or embrace it. And I trusted the teachers. And we did a lot of visual exercises. We did a lot of black and white slideshows synced to music. And we did, we concentrated on the individuality of our vision. And I'm still struggling there, <laughs> but oh. you know, you you know, like all students, you start by imitating the work you like, and um, we'll get into this later. But my my first mentors were actually color photographers, but there were people like Harry Callahan who I would see in magazines and was intrigued by that. Um, Frederick Sommer, Minor White, and others. Yep. So it kind of started there and it's kind of funny that Callahan was one of those because I ended up in Chicago where he used to teach so before he went to um, Rhode Island School of Design. Well very cool and you know I'm thinking that this is the 70s and we're talking the Vietnam War is still going on you know Peter Max has already been established and that whole aesthetic (laughs) is is you know taking over the world um, yep. you know, we, we've got Woodstock going on, you know, for decades, you know, as an idea. So it was a loud, vibrant, fat kind of aesthetic, uh, in the world back then. And yet yep. we also, yet we also had in music, you know, we had people like Simon and Garfunkel coming along, um, yep. doing a very kind of quiet folksy approach as well. So what, what a dynamic time, uh, to get into the visual arts. Yeah. Well, you know, it also, as I said earlier, some some of the photographers I liked early on were, one comes to mind is Ernst Haas, who was an amazing color photographer. I mean, I can tell you he shot Kodachrome at ASA 32, and I did the same thing. And But when I was in this studying then, um, I mentioned that I was interested in color photography and was quietly told that, you know, serious photographers don't 
shoot color. <laughs> and it was kind of at that time that Stephen Shore and Joel Meyerowitz were kind of yep. coming in the background. And color really hadn't come into its own. And I actually had to go work in a color lab to learn color photography. So, I mean, to, and actually I said something to the person who told me that, one of my early teachers. And he said, well, I was wrong. I work in color all the time now. So, but it was, that's the way it was at the time. You know? Well, your your career did not go immediately to still photography, though. You went into 20-year career in graphic design, and you went into filmmaking. You say here uh, on the web that looking through the lens at the flow of motion was mesmerizing. Right. So tell, tell me about motion picture and tell me about graphic design. Well, you know, the to preface it, the photography was kind of mine, and I kind of wanted to keep it mine. I never was pulled towards commercial photography. Photography and my vision, I just wanted to keep to myself. So I had to earn a living. And um, that started out in what were multimedia companies, doing the giant slideshows, working with animation cameras. And I moved up in that until I became the design director of a small company so that I was able to import the company of the, the company's vision onto what we produced, which were slideshows. And as slideshows then the, you know, like Ektachrome, Kodachrome, physical work moved into early computer graphics, we did the same thing um, all the way from the DOS days up until, you know, PowerPoint won the world. And then video started taking over at that point because it was just kind of the, the the stepchild to film. But as you know, it's here to stay. We're up to 8K resolution video, which is surpassing film quality. So I was design director of this company for 20 plus years, managing a team at the most of 10, creating mostly corporate work slideshows, multimedia shows, videos, some print material, enough to keep me busy and earn a good living. You, you make an interesting distinction there that I want to go back to. You said that photography was yours, what was private. And, and you've said a couple times in other interviews, you, you say, you know, in personal photography, things find you. And yeah. I understand the find you part, but I, I'm really interested in this distinction in personal versus, you know, what corporate or professional or, you know, whatever. You've also said, you know, and this is a quote, photographing for myself, the world disappears into a meditative state. Yeah. And, and, and I, I really want to get to the, to the meditative and the Zen, but is, is for you, is there a big distinction between, let's call it corporate work and personal work? Yeah, I think with a lot of corporate work, you have to understand the company. You have to understand their brand message. And the visuals you create represent the brand message. Your stamp on that is the quality of what you do, the mechanics of what you do. But if, if you're photographing, maybe there's 10% overlay of yourself on that but it is not for you it is for somebody else where the photographs you take for yourself i'm gonna uh, there's a minor minor white quote that i put in my show and 
I'll, you know, I'll read it to you. It's while we cannot describe an appearance, the equivalence, we can define its function. When a photograph functions as an equivalent, we can say that at that moment, and for that person, the photograph acts as a symbol or plays the role of a metaphor for something that is beyond the subject photographed. Miner's got some really good quotes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was fortunate enough to meet him a couple of times, and I actually have a print in my living room that I bought from him. But anyway, so... I think for me, and it goes back to those early education days, if I'm, and this happens to me, whether I'm photographing the waves in the Zen Waterstone series, or I worked on a series years ago when my mom died photographing in greenhouses. And once I'm in the moment, once I'm totally focused on image creation, things kind of disappear in the background. I'm totally in that moment. And I've actually read that this happens to race car drivers, too. They have to concentrate when they walk out to get in their car. They don't hear the crowds. They don't hear the noise. They have to stay focused. In their case, it's a, you know, it's a survival thing. But in my case, it's I'm just really in the moment. And if we call that a Zen moment or if we call it the ability to isolate visually from the noise around you, it doesn't really matter, but it happens. And I can't explain it beyond that. So I, I have heard mountain climbers and long distance runners and, and other people uh, describe that feeling as a state of grace. Um, which which strikes me as a really compelling doorway to walk through to try and figure out that feeling. And this is going to be a a wonderful segue into the Waterstone series that you've got, because I I remember somewhere you were describing, you know, going on vacation or on a trip with your wife, and you'll go out to take these pictures. And from her point of view, you are standing simply looking down into the water for half an hour or more. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. very patient. Yeah, so. and yet, yet the, the world. So these images are very much uh, like a Zen garden. Basically, they are a rock uh, in shallow water with a wave moving one way or the other. But they, I mean, th- that's a really poor description of the power <laughs> of these images. <laughs> um, t- tell me what first attracted you to this kind of motif, and, and what you think you're chasing there. Yeah, well, it, I've always been attracted to the water. I'm a swimmer and a diver, and all those kind of. Things. So water itself is necessary in my life. It's very soothing. It's very comforting. But, you know, we had been to the Bahamas, and I had taken a bunch of photographs, and this was maybe 2016, maybe 2017. And we came back, and there was one image backlit of the top of a rock in the water that I couldn't get out of my mind. I don't know why I took it. It just stuck there. And it, you know, for lack of a better description, it looks like the wrinkled back of a whale or something. And I'm like, I've seen this image before. Where have I seen this image? And I started hunting. And it was an Edward Weston image called China Cove. And it's taken from a a little more distance, backlit China Cove, which is a cove in California. It's probably near Point Lobos. And it's a rock sticking out of the water, backlit, 
similar in feel, but I remember seeing that photograph years ago and wondering, why'd you take that? So it made me re-examine that one image, and there were other water images, and we, we go back to the Bahamas once a year. And the next time back, I waded into the water rather than standing outside the water. Almost lost myself in the camera a couple times. Um, <laughs> my wife tells the story of me going under and the arm staying above the water. The <laughs> Save the camera. Forget me. Save the camera. I'll be okay. And uh, as I stood in the waves, and I, it's kind of a, it's shallow. It's usually three or feet or so. Um, and as I looked through the viewfinder, I found that moment of grace that you were talking about and started looking and anticipating the motion, the waves, the colors, the movement. And you can only do it so much. As you know, some of it, what you see isn't always what you get, particularly when things that are moving. But I came back with, you know, a couple hundred images that to me were astounding. And I began to learn and study the movement and how best to capture it what kind of shutter speed would allow me to capture motion, what aperture would allow me to keep a depth of field, what did I want to do. And every time we went back the next few years, I would spend at least a couple hours in the morning within the same area attempting to capture new images that express that same sense of for me, it kind of goes back to Japanese rock gardens in a funny sort of way mm-hmm. and sort of the meditative quality. It was with me. It was incredibly enjoyable. And I knew at the moment that some of the images were the ones I was wanting to capture. So I have looked at rock gardens a lot, um, Japanese rock gardens. I started looking around to see what else I could look at. And I found, and I, I've always wondered whether I pronounced this right, the Suzeki, which it literally means waterstone. Right. And a couple thousand years ago in China, they also took rare, well-formed stones and displayed them in water trays and trying to recreate some of the mountains and landscapes and seascapes. And it kind of stuck with me, as you said, you know, they're kind of rocks in the water, and they're, so were the these displays that were meant to be sort of ritual, um, and it, it it was to represent sort of Buddhist ideas as well. So it was a connection for me. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. 
Well, one of the things that, that I find really compelling as audience to uh, your images and, and to this aesthetic is that there is a functional contradiction going on here. These, oh, are, th- these are peaceful images. They're meditative images. But they are also images of disruption and turbulence. Um, yeah. yeah, I re- actually never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. Thank you for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean, and, and so is the rock in, in the in the in the garden. The, 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 all the patterns are reacting to an intrusion. So you really can argue that these are not peaceful images, and yet we find them peaceful. Right? Do you have any? I mean, as a photographer, as an yeah, artist, no, no, I get it. I get it. I mean, it, it's interesting because when I had the show of them, they're two by three foot prints hung, kind of a little below eyesight. So you look down a little bit, kind of like you're experiencing it. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of people come up to me and go, oh my God, I'm, I feel like I'm standing where you were standing. And it was just delightful. But going back to your reference, if you're standing in that water, you're constantly shifting your weight against whatever way the water is going. Right. The, the, the sand itself is moving. You're unsteady. It is a struggle. So to isolate a moment of that does not represent the struggle to capture the image at all. And yet that struggle, I mean, we've all stood in, in, a, in a beach and had the sand under our feet, you know, being sucked oh, yeah. away. Yeah. And we come back and we and you say, how was it? Oh, it was wonderful. It was peaceful. <laughs> it was, and, and yet we're being sucked out to sea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- th- but I, I think that's rich. And, and, you know, you said earlier, so many people walk up to photographers and say, what are you taking a picture of? Because there isn't that sort of simple layer of dramatic tension in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. I do. That it happens here. I'm, I'm trying to sort of recreate this feeling because we haven't been able to go to the Bahamas with, we live on Lake Michigan and, you know, I'll be taking water photos and somebody will eventually be standing next to me looking into the water to see what I'm taking a picture of. Is there a, you know, a giant fish or something? <laughs> so it is, it is confusing to people. Yeah. Your portfolio, Stephen, goes well beyond the Waterstone. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I'm looking at your website now uh, and everybody at StephenGunther.com. And you've got the Bahamas and Germany and Thailand and Sri Lanka. You've got beautiful images of weavers in India. I mean, all I'm just really impressed with the breadth and, and, and the range of what you've been able to photograph. Uh, so beyond that Zen moment of, of Waterstone, what calls to you? Well, it, it, referring back to the, the travel images, I was fortunate enough for a few years to travel the world and document humanitarian projects. And that usually involved a small film crew and a photographer. I went along as sort of executive producer to sort of guide the story. But I always had a camera with me. And there was always time during the day to take images. Or if possible, since I already was there, whether it was India or Sri Lanka or wherever, I'd stay for a while um, and use that time creatively. So I'd never really been, documentary photography was not a calling for me, but I was thrown into it and it was an opportunity to look at a different environment, to isolate some images and to share that travel 
And it was interesting. It was very interesting. So. Uh, and th this gets to what I mentioned at the beginning about your use of color. Your images are present. Let, let's use that term. They're not garish. They're not loud, but they're certainly not subtle either. They're a kind of celebration of the way color, you know, it, it, uh, influences the, the volume of our visual world. Are you seeking out colorful subjects? Is there some post-processing going on here to punch this? Uh, what, what is your relationship to color, since you mentioned that in your schooling? There is no post-processing, maybe a tiny bit of color balance, but, you know, with digital photography today and raw images, you know, you can set the color balance to daylight, to tungsten, right. to whatever. So if there's an image that I think is just a tiny bit green, I might add a little bit of red to it. But beyond that, um, there is none. And this, the whole color thing goes back to my early days of looking at, I mean, one of the first books I ever bought was Creation by Ernst Haas. And mm -hmm. there, there is a connection between his work and my work. Um, I probably was... 14 maybe when I bought that book and okay. again I don't have don't don't have a recollection of why color has always been of interest to me and when I take a documentary photograph I'm aware of the color I'm aware of what the color is saying what is connected to in the image it's not conscious I don't stand there and go okay that that red is a zen color it needs to be here but I think there's a photograph of from Thailand of four monks in their their orange robes, and it it is the center of the image, and it connects to so much of what is going on. So the color was a draw for me, but it connected to everything else in the image. Well, I, I'm deeply impressed by the, the presence of, of the color in your images. I'm looking at the Thailand uh, series you've got on your website right now, and just one of the early images is the uh, forward several seats and, and then the bow of a boat uh, moving through a canal. And it, it's just mesmerizing with the contrasts and, and the way the greens and the yellows and the browns are all working together. You know, it's one of those images that, yes, it just came along, but you had the talent uh, and the insight to see it. Yeah, one of yeah one of my good friends, who's also a, a designer, has said to me that his opinion that there's two types of photographers: those that take portraits and those that have an eye for design. And I'm definitely the eye for design photographer, and it it is built into me. I think I studied design in graduate school, but I, I think it's in there. I. I composition design and all those sort of things are just, they're just well, well so. thanks a lot Stephen. because I'm, I'm about to give you a compliment on your portraits here too so no no actually yeah those portraits are fun so they're and, and it was it was kind of exciting because that's not that was not something i was always comfortable with and but one of the things when you travel in a foreign land whether it's thailand or india i don't take touristy pictures i ask people if i can take their pictures out of respect, and I think you get you get a more authentic image if the person is participating. Oh yeah. L let me ask you about a couple specific images. W one back in in the the series we were just talking about, which is all orange. 
Um, I don't know if it's what kind of cloth it is, you know, whether it's bed sheets or something else. Um, but right. it's simply orange cloth hanging on a, a rope of some sort that you can't see. Yeah, Ooh. I know. Wonderful, wonderfully vibrant image. If you remember the, the situation there, tell me the story of that one. Well, I, I mentioned the, the, the three or four monks that were walking mm-hmm. uh, one of the images. That is their residence. That's okay. Home in Bangkok, and they were very open to me wandering around. And this, that orange blanket covering, whatever it was, it had basically been washed and was hanging out to dry. It was. I was basically looking in their yard at their stuff, but the way the light fell upon it, if I remember correctly, the right half is kind of in the light, and the left mm-hmm. half shadow. Yep. It just created a, an interesting pattern and almost made it come to life in a funny sort of way. It, it is a wonderful study in texture and shading and um, the way the lines of, of the smaller bit of fabric inter- intersect with the others. It's one of those things that I can see somebody walking up and saying, what in the world did you just take a picture of? <laughs> and yet it, it's, it's mesmerizing, you know, from the audience point of view. Right. Um Jumping over to another part of another portfolio of yours, the one called Faces, uh, which mm-hmm. are the portraits, which I think are, are wonderful. But I'm curious because several of them you present on the website as diptychs, as as paired photographs. Right. Um, so n- now we're getting into narrative here a little bit. Now now we're getting into storytelling. Tell me why some of these images are put together. I mean, they're the same person or, or that person in a different setting. What's going on here? You know it. They're almost, and the one that comes to mind is there's a young Indian woman on the right side, and then there's sort of a, a stone deity on the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't take them together. It was only in the editing process. And some of it was, I don't really take a lot of verticals. So <laughs> sometimes I'll look for two verticals that make a horizontal. And try to find a way. And I, and I like, because of the multimedia past, I do like the juxtaposition of images. And in those two, I mean, this this young woman just made a, a gaze and uh, a warm connection that, to me, the, the statue on the other side also reflected um, that same kind of warmth and gave it a history. So, and sometimes it's just to put things in context. There is an image that was shot in India, two images together, and there is a guard, and he is very proud of his job. In context, I wanted to make sure that people knew his, the context of where he was, not to see him at all as anything other than a a person proud at what they do. I, I'm looking at the picture you were just talking about um, of the young woman and the statue, and there's so much going on in the pairing of them. Their heads are sort of leaning towards each other. There yep. are reflections. Um, there's an orange. It's out of focus, you know, with Boca, but there's an orange something in her necklace, which is matching uh, a bit of orange in the statue. I mean, you have created a comparison here, um, which has a kind of cultural narrative to it that I find mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Genius. A few uh, images later on in the same series. Again, it would this would be in India or Sri Lanka. You have a, an older woman pouring water out of right. a vase of some sort, paired with an image 
uh, of somebody laying incense again, you know, at the water. But you you can't look at the these two images together without this 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 great bit of depth opening up. So l- let me ask you: do, do you think a single image can be narrative? Yeah, there can be a story in a single image. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These this like this this these two from India. We were in the middle of an area called Maheshwar, which is in the middle of nowhere. And um, I would get up at 5.30 in the morning before we had a film and wander down to the Sacred River. I think it's called the Namarath River. Um, Forgive my mispronunciation. And everybody was there doing their morning rituals, whether it was blessing the water, lighting incense. So I wanted to showed sort of multiple things going on and pairing that image. So. And, and you were actually there to document the weavers. Correct. No, so, so I mean, you, you had a narrative intent from the very beginning uh, with that, and then just, just changing. A couple other things in, in your portfolios that I want to ask you about. First of all, the collection called Texture. What's going on there? Maybe it's the, that graphic design side of me again, but I've always looked at texture as a design element and i'm always aware of it in my environment and so i don't really think about it but when i see it i i take it and you know (laughs) it it there may be in many ways um a funny sort of way i think a graphic designer would look at some of these and go i could make an album cover out of that well of course now we got covers or uh, a greeting card or something because there is a a simplicity to them that has to do with simple, simply the shapes and the colors and the textures. And so they're always, and you know, it's it's fascinating because you can take a texture that is inspiring. You can take a texture that's a little bit dreadful. I think there's one in that series of India that shows sort of a muted figure on a doorway, and there's a lock on the doorway, and there's something mysterious and foreboding about it so you're making me look at all these images again i've got to go back and do this <laughs> particularly the, the the double ones it's like wow this is i'm this is great you're really you're really I, thank you well i i i'm struggling in 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 my artistic life to explain other than visually, the appeal of texture and color mm-hmm. as content. Because I'm looking at, again, th- this is your texture series. There uh-huh. are things that, that are easy to explain, like the silver doorknob in, in, in the blue-green yeah. or yeah. in the aqua door. Okay, I, um, I get that. But just before that image, there's a brown wall, and it's light brown and dark brown and yellow brown, and it's yeah. not yeah. representational at all, and I love it. And I think a lot of people looking at this image or you know similar images that are more abstract than representational would also say, brilliant. And you say, why? And they say, I have no clue. <laughs> yeah, so, there's one um, further down that's got a bunch of paint and textures. And, you know, you can look at sort of the history of photography from Walker Evans to Aaron Siskin. And I think a lot of photographers have been attracted to environmental textures, whether it's Siskin did everything from rocks, I think, in Martha's Vineyard to, you know, he was big at photographing deteriorating billboards, which, you know, I think 
connected in many ways to what was going on in sort of abstract expressionism at the time. So I think that that influenced him a lot. I mean, I'm just guessing. I don't really know. But I don't know. I can't leave him alone, you know? <laughs> I, I look at these images, and, and to, to go back to this notion of narrative, which is something I think compels all of us, you have things like the little ladder with the broom next to it. Yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah. and, I mean, that's clearly a, a story. I think for the more abstract stuff, we seek story, and that compels us into the image. And, and I'm looking at your images here, and you know the, the very next one in your group, the 24 moments, which again, th- these are patterns, these are lines, um, you know, found right. in your travels. But you've made a single image out of 24. Yeah, that and that one's first for a reason. It. Um I was actually filming in Taiwan, and it, it was in January. And it's supposed to be kind of nice in January, and it, it was like 50 and rainy every day. <laughs> so I actually shot those images with an iPhone okay, uh, with an umbrella over my head. And I, you know, as we're talking about now, I it's sort of the graphic design elements, and, you know, I have no idea what, some of the words mean or but i was so attracted to the use of color and the use of shape in these that again they could be you know cd covers and when i came back and i'm looking at them i'm thinking some of them are strong enough by themselves but what if i was to create a grid out of them in photoshop and it, it sounds easy but there probably were a couple hundred images. So to find 24 that I thought worked together, it was fascinating. It was a really kind of learning experience for me. So. And from the audience point of view, of course, the minute you've got two, we start looking for the changes and the repetitions. And we, yep. you know, all of a sudden there are visual repetitions and cadences and moods that become present between and, and what you've created is essentially what a musician would call a chord. Um, you know, you, you put these things together and we all hear a sound that hasn't been played. You know, we hear the addition of all of them together. Stephen, what are you working on now? Well, there's a, there's a you know, COVID kind of put a damper on traveling. So there are a couple of things that, that I've been working on. And one of them is on my website, it's called Remnants, because I felt stuck. I still felt that I had to produce something. And I've always been attracted to postcards, images on postcards. Why did they shoot that one? Some people think that, you know, back in the day that Stephen Shore's gorgeous view camera photographs look like postcards, because they have that, for lack of a better term, aesthetic. So, I was going through all the postcards and I realized that there's an image inside the image. There's a better isolation in there. There's a better selection that the photographer didn't see or didn't need to see because he was simply documenting something. And I started looking at smaller sections of it and I scanned them or I photographed them with a macro lens and it picked up the dot pattern of the lithography. So it added a graphic element to it. And 
again, I, I was kind of hooked. Um, it, it spoke to both the graphic designer in me. It spoke to the image maker in me. And it just continued for a while. And some of the imperfections in the postcards actually added to the aesthetic of the images. And these are, they need to be large. They, they don't work small. Their final prints are three by three feet. So, Oh, my. Yeah, up close, you just see the pattern, but as you back away, you begin to see the image. There is one in that series further down that is the edge of an adobe building in New Mexico. And it there's some registration marks that were off on the printing because it's just cheap printing. But when you take that area and blow it up, it almost becomes painterly in a funny sort of way that the imperfections, it'd be like silk screening something out of register and looking at that, that new image to see how the edges and the colors related to each other. So it's been kind of fun. Well, I'm, I'm looking at that specific image right now, as well as the rest in the series, and it is, mes- it is mesmerizing. The, the texture of the paper, the, the colors of the images, the isolations, wonderful, wonderful work. Stephen, from- it did take a lot of cleanup because there were sixties, <laughs> 70s postcards. So I will admit to retouching those. So. Okay. Okay. But I, I won't tell anyone. Thank uh, you. <laughs> Stephen, th- this has been great. I admire your work. I, I think th- there are lessons here about approaching um, not only the mindfulness and, and the Zen approach, but a- approaching subjects for all of us. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. You actually, um, this is more of a two-way street than I anticipated. Some of your <laughs> comments about the the Zen water stuff, the obstructions, the the challenges, the forces. Though I knew it unconsciously, I really hadn't thought about it. And just sort of the feedback about the the, the diptychs, the I don't know. It's just it. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's been it's been my it's been my pleasure from beginning to end okay i'll talk to you later sir thank you be well frames because excellent photography belongs on paper visit us at www.readframes.com <laughs>